Hey everyone, this is Anatoly. You're listening to the Solana No Sharding podcast. And today we have uh, Vinny Lingham, um, CEO, founder of Civic, as well as the Bitcoin Oracle. <laughs> the name still follows me around. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Anthony, good in here. So, I don't know. What do you want to talk about actually, like uh, during this podcast? Do you want to do you want to go technical? Um, yeah, we can go a little technical. We can talk about scaling layer one, layer two. Okay. Actually, I'm I'm curious your story of how you got into Bitcoin because you're oh. one of the OGs and uh, like you were there from like super early days. And I'd like to know how that happened. Sure. So in 2012, I uh, was uh, you know starting out a company called Gift. Um, mobile gift card platform, and we were selling gift cards online. What we found was that there was a high amount of credit card fraud. And so uh, that really affected the way our, our, you know, our margins, you know, like think about it this way, on a gift card, you're getting, you know, on average, I'd say eight to 10% margins, right? Imagine you're paying out 3% to, or two point whatever, 5% to credit card fees and another, you know, 1% for fraud. It's like three and a half percent. It's like, it's half your margin, you know, forty percent margin gone. It's not sustainable. And then when you have fraud kicking in, like on bad days, where you basically just you, you know, if you go and give away a hundred dollar gift card to a fraudulent credit card, you've lost you know the profits on three thousand dollars worth of sales. So it's just it's a low margin business. And so I was trying to find a way to you know either combat credit card fraud or look for a global payment mechanism, something which anyone in the world can pay me for you know, a gift card from Amazon, and I don't have to worry about who you are. And, you know, it, it, it would invert the model. I mean, the model for credit card payments is one where there's you know, a high degree of consumer protection. So uh, you can charge back, et cetera, et cetera, and you, you're, you're protected because it's a, it's a credit card. Um, what actually winds up happening in, in, in a, bearer, a digital bearer asset like, like Bitcoin in those days was that, you'd, you know, you'd basically trust the merchant. So you'd send, you'd send us Bitcoins, you'd have a proof of invoice, et cetera, and we would send you the gift card once uh, Bitcoin hit, it was yeah, you know, it was a it was a um, uh, a zero conf transaction. So you get the gift card within seconds because we, we were you know assured to extremely high degree of certainty that your Bitcoin was good, it was valid, and we would we would get it, and you couldn't charge back. Now we had customers that had refund problems and other problems. We would deal with it through the customer support channel, but we didn't have that you know twenty to fifty dollar credit card chargeback fee. So that's how I got into it. And so at the time it was like. You know, myself and Eric Voorhees and Roger Ver and uh, you know Brian from Coinbase, a whole bunch of us, you know, sprouting up companies um, to you know to do stuff in in the crypto space. And I think it was all it was pretty much a, a an industry where everyone is focused on getting merchant adoption for Bitcoin. And you know, it was interesting because at the time you couldn't spend Bitcoin anywhere. And to prove out that use case, we went and opened up our platform to Bitcoin. And so even though we had BitPay and a few others that had got, you know, 50 or 100 merchants or 1,000 merchants maybe using it, the moment we opened up on our platform, we had 55,000 physical retail locations in the, in the U.S. that you could go in and spend your Bitcoin, and it worked perfectly. You'd walk into a, you know, a Target, you'd put $100 worth of Bitcoin into your wallet, and you'd get a Target gift card, and you could spend it. And so this took off, and it did really well. At, at one point, we were 5% of all blockchain transactions. Uh, oh. It was crazy. Of all Bitcoin transactions, 5% went through gift. Um, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. So we learned a lot. Um, I mean, I always tell the story that we, we did a hundred thousand transactions with on zero conf. Um, you know, up in the point before RBF was integrated, uh, was uh, you know was enabled, and uh, there was you know, no double spends because it was just so, you know, technically just just hard to do, right? Yeah, like so. Zero conf means that I send you a, basically like. I have my Bitcoin wallet, right? And I sign a transaction and send it to you. And you just trust that I'm not going to screw you, right? Yeah, and it's not, so just, like, it's not just the trust part of it. It's also the, the you know, the economics of like, why would you go and do a double spin for $100 is pretty high, right? Like to go and set the time, put the coins up, go mine, go and create a, a, you know, a double spend. It's just costly. And then also mine it. On a couldn't, I, yeah? couldn't I submit uh, another transaction at the same time to the well, network? You could, but the network at the time was working on a first seen basis. It would reject the second the second transaction. Um, got it. So miners would. So most of the miners that are operating, 
That's probably still true today, right? They, yeah, yeah. Well, well. So RBF is is the screw up, yeah, because with RBF, uh, if if someone you know if you replay the same transaction with the higher fee, the miner will mine the second transaction because he's higher. Got it. Yeah. So yeah. So, so the big screw up with RBF and why it's not suitable for for payments is um, the fact that when you do the second transaction replayed, you can change the destination address, <laughs> which makes no sense at all. So you you know the whole point of RBF was that oh well if a transaction gets stuck and you can't get it through because the fee is too low you can you know increase the fee and resend it but why would you be allowed to change the address and but that but you know within the Bitcoin community it was decided by the powers that be that that um, you know you could what what does RBF mean like what is uh, it re- re- replaced by fee. Got it. Oh, yeah, I remember it. Yeah. So, but it's still all the stuff is based on minor agreement, right? Because at any time, a malicious or non-conforming minor could create Absolutely. a block where they Absolutely. insert the double spend transaction, right? Yeah, and that's why you go back to the commercial realities of running of running you know the, the systems in the real world. Uh, yeah. Wh- why do you think that Starbucks? When you go buy a Starbucks cup of coffee for five bucks or ten bucks, whatever you spend at Starbucks, why do you think they don't take you a signature from you? Because they just trust that you're not gonna like, I guess, say that that card was stolen. And no, it's not a trust issue. See, this is the point. Like, we tr- we trust doesn't matter. The, the 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 transaction amount is so small that the economics of slowing down the line. And they've done these studies. McDonald's did the same study. The the the, the cost of the signature and the time is more expensive than the risk of it being charged back. But and, but this is an agreement between Starbucks or I guess Visa sets, sets the standard. I don't know if it's the merchant banks that they're no, using. No, no, no. The merchants, the, the merchants can. So you as a merchant, if if what happens when the chargeback comes through is this: the merchant gets notified there's a chargeback, there's a, a customer disputing a five dollar charge on their credit card for Starbucks. If you accept the the chargeback and you say, look, you know, fine, we'll give me five bucks back, um, you know, that, that's fine. You lose five dollars. If you don't accept it, you have to prove and pr- produce the signature so they can match it to the back of the card to make sure that the signatures match and prove that the customer was actually there. They did sign. They, you know, that's their signature, and therefore the chargeback's not valid. The cost of doing all that is not five bucks for Starbucks. So their their view is, look, you know, the cost of repudiating a, a transaction is cheaper for us to just pay the five dollars. And and not worry about having you know, this whole bank of signatures. This, this sounds like a, a huge farce. Because one, when I sign my card, it's not like I send the signature to Visa. No, no, and, no. no. And, and two, when I sign the receipt, it's not like they verify the signature, right? No, exactly. This is that's exactly how the real world works. The merchants just keep these things in a, in a, in a box somewhere or in a file. Uh, it's all largely digital these days, anyway. But they keep on file. If they need it, they can produce it. But they, you never need to have the signature unless it's disputed by the by the consumer. And so, what so we, what we're talking about is like risk adjusted systems. Yeah. On the one hand, you can say a system a system should be in place so that nobody can possibly game the system at all, and it needs to be ultra-secure, locked down to the point that it's non-functional, but it's so secure. Or you could say, what sort of level of risk tolerance could we handle? Uh, are we okay with double spins on... You, uh, you, it, it, look, the way I would say this, look, if someone sent me a million dollars today on Bitcoin, I'd want six confirmations before I'm comfortable that this thing's going to go through, okay? If someone sent me a hundred bucks... I'm okay with it, but like with RBF, it's made RBF's made it impossible now because you know they can replay the transaction. But pre-RBF with zero conf, if someone sent a hundred transactions, you can be reasonably assured that they're not going to try and double spend that because it's just not economically worth their time. That's really interesting. Like, man, so like this totally brings me back to this idea that like Bitcoin in itself is never really a hundred percent confirmed, right? It's probabilistic. Exactly. So, even if I even if I send you a million dollars, right? Yep. Let's say Binance gets hacked and loses forty million dollars, right? They yep. can publish the private keys and bribe miners to unroll forty million dollars worth of blocks. Well, right? yes, right. In, in theory, in theory, that's possible. You need to have a, a, you know a lot of coordination, but yes, it's possible. It's but all, the, coordin- it's the coordination all- can happen just on the market, right? Because they simply write a transaction with their old keys that pays a $10 million fee. So, Some miner so, will try to produce it. You, you, you're 100% correct. Bitcoin is 
was Bitcoin itself was designed as a, in my opinion, as a probabilistic system where the percentages are, you know, t- tend towards hundred uh, percent. Nothing's ever hundred percent. Otherwise, it doesn't functionally work, in my opinion. Like it, it, like if you make it so that it's super secure, so it doesn't become commercially viable. Now, um, let's talk about like what Satoshi said, for example. He always spoke about, you know, for example, vending machines vending within a second, right, or uh, delivering a product within a second out of the vending machine. How would that work? Except with zero conf, you cannot wait for one confirmation. Well, so, in Solana, you can wait for one confirmation in like four to milliseconds, and we can have we can give you a guarantee that's not one. Yeah, yeah I, I get that. <laughs> I get that. But I'm saying in Bitcoin today, that's not possible. But yep. in, Bitcoin, in Bitcoin five years ago, it was. It was six years ago. So, what's cool about that approach is that you're using an off-chain mechanism, which is just miners having running software that follows a standard, right? That says that if you submit a second transaction that's in a mining pool, we'll reject it unless yeah. the destination and the fee is better. Like Exactly. So RBF, was, RBF could have been implemented better. You could have had a situation where you cannot change the address and that would probably have saved it from a transaction perspective. But the view is that no one, the view, like I've read, spent a lot of time reading in the forums and like what the developers said, and their view was this, uh, Bitcoin should, you should not trust anything less than six confirmations, otherwise, or at least one confirmation, but you know, otherwise it's not secure. But like the point is, if it's my money at risk, I'm accepting payment, like who are you to say that I shouldn't accept something or not, right? So, so that argument doesn't quite work for me. Uh, but if you make it really easy for people to commit fraud, then, what do you expect? So then the system becomes less functional and it reduces the utility of the platform because it could have been used for that quite extensively. So RBF kind of broke it. RBF broke it. So, so, so the, the counter argument is that, you know, you can redesign wallets and you can, you can, you know, RBF is optional. Not everyone has to use it, etc. But the customer support nightmare it creates where all wallets don't, you know, aren't created equal. They don't support it the same way. It makes it difficult. And it's just hard. Uh, it's hard for you to say to the customers, if your transaction is a RBF transaction, we will not give you an instant gift card. But if it is an RBF transaction, you have to wait. You know, like it's just, how do you communicate that in a, in a fast e-commerce flow? So these are, these are some of the problems that, you know, that, 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 yeah. that you have to think about from a UX perspective. Now, obviously, they, they, you know, they're trying to change that with Lightning and Lightning Networks, but the, uh, yeah, we'll see. Remain, it remains to be seen. So if, if you guys had to use Lightning, I, I don't like, like just shitting on Lightning because I think it's a, it's a cool computer science problem, <laughs> a really hard one. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, I, would Lightning be feasible in a, in a gift? If, well, the the problem the problem with with gift and with e-commerce is adoption, right? Like lightning is lightning actually would work. Lightning would be fantastic if lightning was used by everyone in the world instead of Bitcoin natively. Then you don't have a problem. If every net, if every wallet was a lightning enabled wallet, or um, you know, because look, payments payments and e-commerce is a network effect business, right? If if you think about this, money is a network effect business. Uh, it's an, and so the more people that have access to something, the more valuable it becomes. So if everyone in the world is using Lightning, fantastic. But how do you get it there? I don't would, know. Would, would Lightning actually, like in the gift card scenario, Lightning would have a state channel between you guys and everyone else? Well, the, the, you, you, I don't know how that would work because every single user would have to open up a channel, I guess, or you'd have to trust the third-party provider to open a channel between the third-party provider, then it, then it goes in the discussion between is it a custodial wallet or non-custodial wallet? Because if it's a if it's a custodial wallet, then it's possible, but then you don't hold the keys to your funds. And and if it's a non-custodial wallet, then you have to open the channel yourself, but then you have to, you know, uh, do, it's too complicated for me even, and I'm in, a, in this space. Like, I just think through the, from a consumer perspective, I just don't see how I don't see how we get adoption. If we get there, fantastic. I just don't see how it's going to get there. And I've been saying that for years. So you know what? At some point, I'm going to be wrong because enough time would have passed so that people get it right. But in, in the time that pa- the passage of time is what costs us, right? If we you know we were talking about lightning in 2015, it's 2020. It's not ready yet. We've lost five years. We could have been somewhere else. And it was promised in 18 months back then. Maybe it gets promised in you know another 18 months from now. Maybe in three years from who knows? But the point is, like, uh, the world's not going to wait for a system to be built when there's market demand. So maybe something else will arise. I don't know. Maybe Solana. Um, 
do you think like do you think this adoption curve that we're seeing is similar to the internet adoption because like in the 90s it was it, there wasn't much stuff going on on the internet right this is a bunch of weird websites and this, uh, bulletin boards this is different i tell you this is different like if the internet was an information revolution it's it, it's similar but it's not the same thing right this is like the only thing we're really changing is it, it's kind of the 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 what we're changing out there with crypto is in my opinion is like you know uh, custodial wallets versus non-custodial wallets ownership of your own money not being subject to a bank you know, take your money from you whenever they want to, things like that. Like the, the money side of it is interesting. The volatility in Bitcoin, for example, is a problem, right? People don't want to put their funds in Bitcoin because they you know, might go down 50%. The store of value, value narrative has failed up to now. It hasn't failed for the people who got in early, right? But it fails for people who bought in late and then people, even but, this, the last run to 14,000, anyone buying there was stupid because now it's down back to eight. Like that's not a very good store of value. But anyone that bought a three thousand, right, is feeling pretty good. And three, we saw right. three thousand a, a year ago. But that's not what a store of value is. You can't be reliably assured that the money is going to be there. You have to time the market. Then you're speculating. You you so, could say that store of value is something that doesn't go to zero. That has some intrinsic value. Well, the, not exactly. Not exactly. Look at look at property, right? I think property generally is a good store of value. Over, 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 over many decades and, 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 and centuries. Property has been one of the best stores of value in, in the Correct. world. Because it doesn't go to zero. There's some value to just having this sure. piece of land in a... It's civil resistant, right? There's only X amount of land in the world, and if you own a chunk of it... Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? No, no, exactly. Civil it, uh, resistance is exactly one of the definitions of store value, in my opinion. It, it, but, but, you know... Bitcoin is probably a really good investment for the long term, but it's not what people can run their day-to-day -day lives with. Of course. You can't run a business on Bitcoin. You, you cannot possibly use Bitcoin. Like, uh, and this brings me to a whole different discussion, but like, businesses can't hold, their, especially marginal businesses, they can't hold their day-to-day -day cash reserves in Bitcoin. They just can't. Yeah. They, they have to buy stock. They have to replenish the shelves, whatever it is. They can't do it. So it's not a good. So and, and then the real question is, what do you? What well, what what is what? What do businesses need? What does the world need? And what I always felt that the world needed was a unit of account, a global unit of account, and that's what I thought Bitcoin would be. A unit of account is very different from a store of value. Yeah. And so and by, by that yeah. you mean it, it's just a unit of account of some arbitrary thing. Yes, right? exactly. Twenty-one million units. Perfect. Okay. That's, that's all there is, and the value of that fluctuates. So if you treat it as a unit of account, the US dollar is the world's biggest unit of account. Everything is measured in dollars, uh, yep. financial statements, earnings, etc. There are other unit of accounts that are less valuable than the US dollar, the South African rand. Uh, you know, the inflation rate there is 7 8% a year. And governments expand the unit of account based upon either, you know, their own whims or the you know commercial activities, uh, industrial activities within the country. So the unit of account gives people like these are human beings that don't really, you know, like the average person out there doesn't think about the world the same way, you know, people who are designing money systems think about it. But they want to be reasonably assured that their money is worth more over time. They invested, but they're working with a unit of account. If you look at one of the biggest fallacies, I think, is how people talk about, you know, the, the decline of the U.S. dollar, right? Oh, you know, th in any currency, right? Over 50 or 100 years, how governments have debased the currency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, it's just the expansion of the unit of account. There's more of these, more of these um, uh, dollars out there, and people have tend to have more dollars in aggregate now anyway. Now, you can, you can do price indexing by inflation, et cetera. The, you know, the expansion of the monetary base and I am not an MMT fan, <laughs> just by the way, not a modern monetary theory fan. I, I don't think it goes on forever. But the principle that you have to expand the unit of account to, uh, to account for more commercial activity is a sound one. And even in crypto, we're seeing that, right? We're seeing that a lot of the thesis around like having tail emission for, for yep. crypto projects is, is actually quite important. And 
uh, it has a lot of more positives and negatives. And I used to be anti the tail emission stuff. And I'm kind of like moving over to more neutral to slightly positive that it's probably well worth it over long periods of time because you have to keep expanding that base. I mean, if you think about it this way, the US dollar, if you look at what the monetary base was 50, 100 years ago, I'm guessing whatever, $100, million, $100 billion, whatever it is. The econ- if the unit of account stays the same size, the economy never grows by definition. <laughs> you know, if you think about it, like maybe you can increase velocity of money in that economy, but the, if the monetary base, the unit of account stays the same, how do you get a bigger economy? Uh, I mean, like people do, it, it's, I guess it's harder to measure it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's harder to measure. Then you have you have the situation where you can't you can't like because look, part of inflation is borrowing from the future. So we have to go create yep. roads and infrastructure. So we're going to inflate the monetary base. That infrastructure comes in, and then it leads to economic growth. And there's this back and forth, back and forth in terms of economics. Um, and and we all know, you know, even economists don't know what they're, what they're saying half the time. <laughs> That's fine. But the point is, if you look at if you look at an indexes over over long periods of time. Increasing the size of the monetary base has been an important part of global growth. And so you can't be anti-fiat entirely. There is a good reason for, uh, for fiat. And absolutely, governments are largely corrupt and they make mistakes. But we've seen a lot of progress in society over the past 100 years. It is like, you know, I think the, the long-term success, right, of the of United States, I think, is a, in a large part due to how well they've been able to manage their unit of account, right? Exactly. They're, Exactly, yeah. with low inflation, with low yeah. global inflation, it's a very reliable unit of account. Companies like the day the day a crypto is successful, a, a native crypto, which is a non you know fiat denominated crypto, will be the day that companies start reporting earnings in that crypto. I can't yeah. See, yeah. I can't see it happening yeah. for decades. Even well, Bitcoin, even Bitcoin, like do you see public companies reporting their earnings and their revenues in Bitcoin in five years or ten years time? I don't see it happening. Bitmain, maybe, or Blockstream? Uh, I said pu- public companies. Yeah. Yet. Bitmain, I think, was hoping to go public, right? You can't price the stuff. Yeah. In, 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 you have to use the unit of account that you're transacting in, really. I mean, yeah. probably the conversion, but it's not accurate. So, so the problem we have is that crypto sits as a, a fringe activity until further notice what if it's it is a fringe activity forever i i I doubt that i think that we're going to have um crypto systems that replace existing real world systems um i think you're going to have i mean you've got like the you know the btc crowd it's where bitcoin is just a store of value that's it and it'll become a million dollars a coin because and and people want to own it to whatever the View is there, and then you got the the far right wing, whatever BSV, where the MetaNet takes over everything, and everything runs on one chain, and everyone can store this chain. Like, okay, so you got you got, and then you got everything else in between, right? Um, I mean, what BSV guys are going for what gigabyte blocks now or something? Like, it just the stuff gets. There's two extremes. One's one megabyte blocks, one's one gigabyte unlimited blocks. Um, and so crypto can't do everything, I don't think. I think the, the more we try and make it this multi-purpose vehicle uh, tool, I think the, we're, we're just going to be, you know, bobbing well, so, so, there, so there could be a world where crypto does a thousand different small things, but there isn't like a exactly. single crypto. There exactly. isn't a, crypt, a single crypto for everything. It, it, that's, that's, that's kind of how I see it. Um, I think there'll be the different use cases, and and then maybe you may get one or two winners. You may get like one crypto winning in two or three areas, um, but I don't think you have one crypto to rule them all. I just don't think it's practical. Uh, and and but I think the more we have more of these special use cryptos, the more it has to be taken away from the public view because the average person is not going to be able to manage and have a wallet with a hundred different cryptos that he uses day to day. So that's the thing. It's like people forget about the cognitive overhead for consumer behavior. So yep. uh, look at helium as an example. You know the helium hotspots, etc. That that's something which is interesting because consumers can be using helium on their on their scooters or devices and not even know that they're using helium in the back end. That's purely like a B two B service where yep. um, the you know the 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 data is being transmitted over over eight hundred megahertz and 
the consumer's device does it cheaply, cheaper than AT&T and Verizon, pretty disruptive. It, it opens up applications for new devices, but that's an IoT network. And consumers have no idea it's even running in the background, and they, be, they wind up using um, uh, crypto for that. So, so that's a good use case. Let's assume that Bitcoin gets the store of value thing right, and in a couple of years' time, it's 100000 bucks plus a coin. Fantastic. But then it's used just for store of value. Um, there may be another crypto that gets used for uh, allowing governments to issue stable coins, which they're doing already. So maybe there's a, a Solana could be an example of that, where it's, you need a high-performance blockchain, you need certainty of transactions and speed for settlement. So Solana could get that business. But I think that the world economy is big enough and diverse enough that I think it's very hard for one crypto to just go in and rule them all um, because you have to have trade-offs. If Bitcoin wants to be the store of value, it needs small blocks. It needs uh, the high security level it has. It needs lots of hash power there. And it's and it needs high fees. And, and, and I just don't think that's practical for, for example, an IoT service. Right? You couldn't use it for both. So the way that this plays out, in my opinion, is you just have different cryptos with different use cases based upon, you know, um, cost of transactions, security, speed, different uh, different dimensions. You know, I, I for a long time I thought there was going to be just maybe a couple ch- public chains because the just developers and businesses will probably like pick the you know the. Just a decision-making power in a human, right? Okay, give me the top three, and I'll pick one of those. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. I mean, even Ethereum is expensive at the moment, or some of the things you know we're looking at doing, we're using. Like, it's expensive. I, I think cost is a big issue. Well, I mean, Solana is interesting, and just disclosure. Obviously, I'm part of MultiCoin. I led the initial seed deal in 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 Solana, and I'm a huge fan of Solana. But the cost of Solana and the speed is what makes it so attractive, right? The, 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 you know, it's not going to be as decentralized as Bitcoin with everyone in the world running a node. I, I'd say that tongue-in-cheek because that's kind of the, the laugh about well, it. But, but, you know, everyone, people, in the world is, everyone in the world is not going to run a Bitcoin node. They're going to might hash for Bitcoin, right? That's what I said. Like, it's tongue-in-cheek because it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, like, you know, when, when we first met, you said you can get to – and that's, like, what, two and a half years ago, I think, two years yep. ago? We, you know, the one thing that struck me is that you were comfortable with 15,000 validators being sufficiently decentralized for the network, and I agree with that. I think 15,000 is sufficiently decentralized. You don't have to have a million people running nodes uh, or, 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 or um, you know, so it, it doesn't matter past that point. But you can't have a situation where you have a, a million or 10 million people running nodes and, it's, and it'd be cheap and fast. It doesn't work. I think the decentralization thing, I, I think people don't understand what that means. Right? I, like that, that's my problem with it is like, if you look at Bitcoin, how many mining pools does it take to get to 99% of the hash power? <laughs> There's only 5,000 nodes in Bitcoin, by the way. The, right. And it's just being engineered for the ability for everyone in the world to be able to run a node. But the, even in the first early adopters of like 50 million people, only 5,000 run a node. I don't see the logic in keeping the node, the, the, you know, keeping the block size small because more people will want will be able to run it if no, <laughs> it's not happening right now. Uh, I mean, for something that's trying to be a geographically distributed like store of value i could see the the argument that like you know there's what 20 20 mining pools that make up 99 percent of the hash power right but if the if some entity tried to attack them they'll smash them you know they can definitely smash all 20 immediately like i have no doubt that any you know china russia any of the top powers can just in one day shut down all 20 but because there are this long tail of 5,000, you can't actually get all 5,000. That would be tough, right? Exactly. Even, but, if, but, even but, if you got half of them, the network will repair itself. And that, that but, I think, exactly. is... But do you need a million? You don't need a million. Exactly, but, but exactly the point. So, like, the, I think the point in Bitcoin is, and this is what goes back to the block size debate of you know, 2017, is, like, what is the right size for blocks? Like, what, what size should blocks be? You know, and, and how and, and, and does Bitcoin need a fee market uh, prematurely or not? Because that's the whole that was the whole discussion, you know. So I guess the question is at by block size, isn't that what the block size should be? Is that what should Bitcoin fees be? 
But what? How much did a Bitcoin transaction cost? Absolutely. So if you look at like, again, I go back to the white paper. The white paper already spoke about Visa, Mastercard, those those networks, and the fees on those networks are reasonably high. And it's like you know, two point five three percent. And I'm not so sure why Bitcoin was never moved to a percentage based fee system. I don't know what the history there is, but I always felt that like you know, if it was a a, a, a fee structure and with a cap, you know, like a, every transaction is it's just a simple one percent or whatever it is, um, up to you know five or ten dollars or even you know because it doesn't you know, the size of the transaction doesn't really matter except for the security etc. Um, well, I mean, it does make more sense because the yeah. larger the transaction, the more security you need from the network to make sure, sure this is sure. going back. But you could cap it, right? You could cap it. If someone moved a billion dollars, you you know, they should pay. They should be happy to pay a thousand bucks. They don't have to be paying, you know, one uh, percent. They don't have to pay a million dollars. But you know, there, there should be some cap. But it shouldn't be necessarily. Um, I don't know. Like, like it shouldn't be a flat. A flat fee per transaction, but then you know, and then it gets to the, the, the that gets the whole debate opened in terms of how much, uh, how many transactions we want to have in the network, what can it support, and whether we want people to use the network for, um, for transaction. And, you know, it goes back to the well, Bitcoin is not for buying a cup of coffee uh, uh, analogy, and uh, and it shouldn't be used for five dollar transactions. And if that's what the feeling is, then it, it, you know it, it'll move away from that and become more of a you know, store value, larger transactions, network, etc., and then we're back to where we are today. Which is again, this is what opens up opportunity for other chains. Like, if a government wanted to issue their own stablecoin out there and use Solana today, it would be cheaper to pay using that government stablecoin than it would be to pay with Bitcoin or any other crypto, right? Correct. So, and that's the thing about money: transaction fees is what destroys the network effect. Why doesn't your landlord take a credit card? Because why would he pay three percent fees on your rent check? Yeah, of course. Right. But so, so Visa, Visa's network and Mastercard's network, the money network is is a closed network. You don't money doesn't move out that network because there's a, a transaction fee if it moves to a landlord and back. So it's not real money. It's just a ledgering. It's a settlement network. Um, the same reason why you know a, a dollar is worth nothing on the moon, uh, but you know worth maybe five or ten percent more in rands in South Africa is because. A, the ability to exchange it, and then B, is the acceptability. If I bring South African rands into the United States, no one wants it. It's, worth, it's actually worth nothing. Like, think about it. If you had 100 rand and you walk around to this, every store in Palo Alto or wherever trying to buy coffee, they'll laugh at you. They don't want the money. It's actually worth nothing because no one will take it, practically, right? And so money is a network effect. But the U.S. dollar, you go anywhere in the world, you pay a dollar, they'll give you the equivalent of their local currency, maybe a bit more. And so, so – the only difference here, I think, so acceptability is is critical part of money, and the next part of money, which is important, is is the transaction fees. So if the fee is too high, it breaks down, and the money, the network becomes a closed network like Visa Mastercard. I mean, Visa provides liquidity. Like it provides, like when I, the reason I have a credit card instead of using my debit card is like, you know, basically have two accounts: one that can go negative and one that can't. So the one that can go <laughs> negative is. But, but Visa solving acceptability, not uh, it's a uh, Visa creates the network effect, so your card is accepted in more places. That's what that's but, the value that they're providing. Um, it's a common standard sure. that you, you can mean, use. That's the only value they add is Visa. But is it, as, it, all these terminals. I think that uh, from my perspective, is that like I don't care about the terminal side of it as much as I care about the credit side of it. Like I don't no, want Visa is not giving you the credit. Your bank is giving you the credit. Agreed, but Visa provides a platform for credit to happen, right? No, not really. No, the bank, the bank can give you the same credit on the credit card. The, your bank can give you ten thousand bucks on a closed network credit oh, card. Correct, correct. But you, but you, and you'd be able to draw that money out of the ATMs, but you couldn't spend, You couldn't swipe it in a store, and that's what Visa. Visa gives you the last mile connectivity to be able to swipe the card and do a cashless transaction. But the the money is the bank. Give, but, if, if you but, default on your credit card, Visa doesn't care. The bank cares. Now we have like software and phones, where if a merchant said like, you know, here's a QR code, you get ten percent off. Like people will just like, it, it's like two seconds, right, to go to go through the flow. Like we have enough 
data and that. that's not the core business of Visa Mastercard. That they're layering on new stuff in the past five years or whatever it is. Like I, I think that the so for, data, yeah, all they did was the settlement transactions. Right. All they did I was think, the corresponding banks and, and settling across banks. That's all they did. Like my point is that like the, the day the, the current day and age that we live in is that Visa and MasterCard don't hold a monopoly on this. Like if you go to China it's Alipay and WeChat, right? It's not Visa MasterCard. Yeah. Like um so you can actually and, and, and the money the money network flows a lot faster in those countries as a result. So money right. because the fees are lower. So the moment you have lower fees, you have higher velocity of, of funds. Think about it this way, okay? If I if you have a visa if you, if you were accepting visa and you had a visa card and I was accepting visa and I had a visa card and I went to you and I gave you 100 bucks. 3 bucks goes off the credit card fees, you have 97 back. You send the 97 back to me, it's roughly 91 minus whatever the yep. 91 plus change. And go back and forth and we can do it recursively until we get down to zero. And we yep. it, we could do that in in the space of it would take us maybe a couple of days or maybe a month or so yep. because of the settlement process. Now, if you take yep. the fee to zero and the and settlement to zero, yeah, it's twenty. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't decay, but 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 high fee networks decay value. Yep, and it's kind of rent seeking in a way. And for consumers, it's not that big of a deal because a consumer, you know, they they see a slightly higher price at the store, but they get two percent cash back. Exactly. But the, exactly. But the, the problem is, is like my bike shop, they have ten percent margin on, <laughs> right? Which means that like when I buy a part that's ten bucks, two percent of that goes to Visa, and they only get then you know that's twenty percent of their actual. Actually, on profit. ten on ten bucks, the credit card network is going to get about forty cents or so. Yeah, so because they have a minimum fee, etc. Depends on the deal they work out. So that is, so so this is this is the one of the things people people don't appreciate about credit cards. If you're not losing using a credit card and getting your cash back, you're actually losing money because the merchants have had to mark up all their products to accommodate for credit card fees. Yeah. Now, if you could remove credit card fees and have a crypto network processing it at a fraction of the cost, you can actually drop prices uh, across the board. Yep. And who are the people that cannot get credit cards? Uh, the unbanked. <laughs> yeah, or the poor, right? So, like, it is effectively a it's a tax on the poor for benefits flow to the to the, like the middle class, right? <laughs> well, that's happening. I mean, you know, we're we're launching our civic wallet. I'm gonna use this opportunity to plug civic quickly. Okay. <laughs> we're launching okay. we're launching our civic wallet in March. Um, version two, version one is purely identity. So we solved the identity problem. What we found is that one of the you know one of the issues with just identity is it doesn't it, it's a good standalone. We've got customers and partners using us, integrating us, but we felt that we had to go a step further and try and build something of real utility and real value to the network. And so we actually went and built a non-custodial wallet. We use Bitco um, technology, so we don't keep the keys. It's a multi-sig wallet, multi-sig HD wallet, and. There's no username and passwords. It's all built using facial recognition, and your crypto keys are secured, and you, you lose your phone, you can restore it, etc. Um, and we're, we're building the whole thing using a stable coin. So you so, can move money anywhere in the world. KYC and know your customer and anti-money laundering is all dealt with in that layer. But we don't hold your funds, and it's effectively like a global kind of like a crypto Venmo type of solution where you can send money to any friend in the world and we, we're utilizing on-ramps and off-ramps in multiple countries. And so we're trying to do this as cheaply as possible from a fees perspective so the money keeps moving. That's awesome. Um, do you guys – so I'm, I'm curious about like the, the wallet side of it because that I feel like is one of the huge bottlenecks to adoption. How does yeah. the like, – <laughs> how does a multi-custodial wallet work? So the way it works is, um, well, the way we've built it is that we, you know, we have a key and you have a key, so we can co-sign transactions with you on a day-to-day -day basis. But we can't move your funds without your permission, and you can't, uh, and you can, you know, the first version won't allow this. But in the future, you could also just replace us and go directly to, uh, you know, Bitco, who holds the key, and and uh, ask them to sign a transaction, for example. So, or, or we, so this, or, yeah. So um, what what I, I guess uh, is the enforcement of who can move funds is that secured on chain or off chain? Uh, it's effectively secured. Oh, I mean, so you have a key in your app, and then yep. we have a key, so we we can co-sign it with you. 
Are you asking like when you say enforcement? What do you what do you mean by that? So the stablecoin is deployed, let's say Ethereum, right? So then there, is there a smart contract? That's a multi-sig yep. contract. We're using USDC for it, so it's a USDC okay. coin inside your wallet. But okay, so is there like a? Did you guys write a smart contract for Civic that maintains the basically the USDC balance? Um, for your particular for your contract? Yep. Uh, I need for to check. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure. Um, right. I'm, I'm assuming. I'm assuming so. I didn't get that detail with engineers yeah. on that. Okay, got it. Cool. So yeah, but essentially, it's it, it, it's that kind of the holy grail uh, we think of of uh, payments because consumers don't want to write down seed phrases or remember it. They want to be able to set limits on their accounts. They want to control their own funds. Like your bank account right now, anyone can dip into it and take funds without your approval. Government, IRS, tax authorities, whatever. Uh, anyone well, can touch your account. No, like I'm saying anywhere in the world. Like uh, parts of the world, and I tell you all the stories with South Africa and other parts. Like the government will just come and take your money. Oh, you owe this. And even you may be contesting or whatever. I know friends who've had this problem before. It can just be taken. Debit orders. Just run off your account. Take your money. Sorry. And you have to contest the money afterwards. The difference with this is that you hold the funds and no one else can, no one else can dip into your funds. It's your money. And it's based on the security of Ethereum, right? Well, no. So we have both Bitcoin in there as well. So for the stable coin, yes. For the stable coin, yes. But we've built Bitcoin. You can have. There's a Bitcoin wallet in there as well. There's obviously Ethereum, and we're having other coins uh, as time goes on. Right. And the second level of security is the USDC side, right? Because you're yes. trusting Coinbase to provide the backing, right? Yes, so you have to trust the underlying stablecoin. So right now, we think that's probably the best one out there, the USCC one. Um, you're this Gemini as well. We could we could offer both. Um, but I think over time, in the next 12 to 18 months, you'll find government coins coming in. And so then you can, you know, at that point, you can trust the coin, hopefully, that your government issues and use a digital digital coin in there. Uh, again, the, the whole point of the, the, the funds in being in that account, in that contract, is that only you can sign those transactions out. Otherwise... Where they have to go to the, the the coin issuer, separate your funds, figure out where it is. It's a, you know, it's not as easy just to go and tap into those funds. How do you actually get merchants on board? So merchant adoption is one of those things where this is where you can tap in. Funny enough, to the Visa network and the and the Mastercard and the other credit card network by issuing cards on top of these wallets. Is you know that's a way to go, but there are um, companies already starting to do that in the crypto space. So you can connect these payment networks to other networks, but right now you can just go in, in and out of your bank account. So you can say, look, I maintain a bank account, keep my, my dollars here, move it in and out when you need to. And okay. also, you know, using existing crypto out there, Bitcoin, etc. Uh, you know, you can make payments, you can do what you need to do with your wallet. Look, it, it's, definitely, it's, it's definitely one of those things where... Um, it's a lot easier the bigger the network is because if I sent you $100 in stablecoin, as long as you can trust that you can withdraw it to your account anytime you want, the same as using a PayPal wallet or a Venmo wallet, right? Same thing. Yeah. I mean, why do I use Venmo? It's because... Yeah. But, but, but Venmo is US only. Yeah, correct. So, so, so the difference with what we're doing is we're, we're basically building a global version of that where anyone in the world can move their money into dollars and keep it in dollars, and then and that's the unit of account that they can choose to use. And we may offer others in the future. And you choose the unit of account that you like the most. And once you have the unit account, uh, you can move funds from one person to another, friend to friend. And it's kind of a borderless payment system. Do you think that Libra is gonna like basically take that mission and give it to three billion people? Well, so Libra has a problem because they're probably. I mean, Calibra, from what I understand, is a custodial wallet. So they yeah. take custody of the funds. We're non-custodial and we're global. So it's, it's a bit of a different play. And remember, we can always add Libra into our wallet if it ever took off. There's no reason why we couldn't support Libra. But the point is, we're trying to do is build a non-custodial wallet. And it has your identity tied to it. It has your credentials. You can do transactions that require identity with it, which is a key part to this, right? So you could buy a beer out of a vending machine and prove that you're over 21 at the same time with the same wallet that you use to store your funds. Got it. What are, um, but but again, is, so about okay, the scaling, okay. right? So if we're successful with the wallet, one of the biggest issues is, is Ethereum doesn't scale well in terms of the cost of transactions. And if we go, if, if the price cost of a transaction rises, then you have to look at where do you move the stable coin to 
Because then it can't sit on Ethereum if, it, if the scaling solutions don't work. So then you look at, well, could Solana potentially hold a stable coin uh, that gets issued? And so, one of the things that makes it very difficult, the issuance of the coins, et cetera, is the legal compliance around these things is tough. And so there's a lot of work, and this is why Ethereum kind of owns the market right now on stablecoin issuances. Um, it's, I guess, more trusted by regulators at the moment. But you know, if it doesn't scale, it doesn't scale. I think erratically, right, we go back to like the first thing we talked about is because it's decentralized enough, right, yeah. that we're, we're regulators look at this network and it's just too big for them to fathom. They exactly. like to see it. Uh, that, that, that means that they can't shut it down. And I think that's like where the threshold is. Like, are we going to see networks like Cosmos, like Solana, get to that level in the next couple of years? That I think, you know, even though I'm working, you know, day and night on Solana, I think that's a question that is hasn't been like totally proven yet. And I, I think it's the I think the answer there is, um, you know, for me the answer is going to be. Can you find the use cases that drive adoption? And if that, if that, if you find that, then everything else takes care of itself. I mean, for example, if Civic took off and you know we, we're processing millions of transactions per day, we we can't run that through Ethereum. Right. It's not it's not possible right now. So then we have to go to the stablecoin issuers and work well, with them to issue on a much more high performance blockchain. The, and so the fees are the fees are too high on Ethereum, right? Even at like no, exactly, it's not exactly, exactly. The fees okay. are too high. Absolutely, and uh, you know Ethereum's got some privacy issues. Like, I mean, everyone's well aware that you, you know, someone—if you know someone's contract address—you can see all the coins that they've got. There's no privacy there, which is a huge problem. And people tend to store all their coins in one uh, in one contract address, uh, you know, unless they're smart and they split it up. But most people just store in one address, so you can see exactly what they've got. Um, and so the, these are some of the issues we have to deal with as an as an industry. And so Ethereum is, but again, it's pointless right now worrying about scale unless you've got the volume to make it a worry like this is the whole one of the whole things about startups like you like one of the biggest um one of the biggest what do you call it uh, failure if you look throughout history the biggest causes of failure in startup world was premature scaling where companies thought they were going to take off and they start building all this infrastructure for volume that never comes so we have to be very careful in the industry to do the same thing. You don't want to prematurely, prematurely scale things. Now, it's kind of counter to what you guys are doing. You're predicting the market is going to require a level of scale it doesn't have today. And so your business is trying to say, okay, how do we predict that the scale comes and let's build something that can handle it? And, and I like the, the fact that what I loved about Solana is that it's built as a layer one solution. Because I've always said, if you need layer two, then why don't you just use a database? You know, with checkpoints, <laughs> makes no difference. And what I love about uh, Solana is it's a layer one scaling solution that if we get to the point where we need, you know, 50,000 transactions per second like Visa, um, you know, Solana is the place to go. And uh, you have a solution out there and you probably find companies out there who need that sort of scale. That's the hope. But you're right, like building something before the market needs it, you run into this problem of, of investing a lot of resources before product market fit. Yeah, but, exactly. But you only there's only profit in those in those pre-product market fit opportunities. So you have to kind of like you basically you want to test test the market and do the least amount of work to figure out if you're if there's traction and then invest a bunch of resources and capture the market as, as fast as you can. You know, like but it's tough, like especially in blockchain, because it takes so long to build out the infrastructure. Like you look at like, you know, what was the year where all these companies got funded? 2017, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. No one has shipped. <laughs> um, there's some there's some projects that ship. Zilliqa ship. Oh, well, we shipped, we shipped the V1, and now we're doing V2. So I, mean, I, I was talking specifically about layer ones, right? Like oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. complexity of building an open, permissionless public chain where anybody can join and mess with the network in any possible way without breaking it <laughs> under the assumptions that you know, even like under you know, under even under this like kind of assumption that no more than a third are, are screwing with it not even maliciously, just even accidentally. I yeah. think we're like, 
you look at everyone that's deployed, we're not there yet. But that's just uh, the this problem is complicated. It was literally science fiction when I was in college. Like these papers were written, you know, business need fault tolerance stuff, and yeah, there, there's some theoretical computer that cannot be ever hacked, right? Cannot be ever shut down. Um, and so far, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the only real um, implementations of it. I would say. Yeah, EOS, EOS, EOS is still running, right? That's kind of surprising. Well, I, I thought what's funny, <laughs> what's funny about EOS, quite frankly, is that. They didn't run the new platform on EOS, the new voicing they launched. Oh, yeah, yep. That's like, Correct. hold a second. So people gave you all this money, and you haven't. I, I don't get why they wouldn't use run on EOS, but anyway, we'll see. There's some. I'm I'm sure there's some logic to that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yep. That that is. Uh, I think brings us back to one of the points you made: the thousand different chains. So almost like the these application specific blockchains. Yeah. I, I, again, there's always trade-offs. So unfortunately, I just don't see a way how you can accept all these trade-offs and um, and have one chain to rule them all. I, I, like you need a chain that's super secure, super low cost, super fast, and super decentralized. <laughs> Give me one <laughs> chain that can do all, do all that, and, and, <laughs> you know, yeah, that, that and, 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 a, and a global brand that everybody knows. Yeah. Like people need to know what that chain is, and then you have to prevent the the, the specula speculation in the price. And I, I just I don't see it happening. I think you'll have, um, I, I do think from a consumer perspective there'll be like maybe you know a handful of chains. Kind of the chains will be like maybe like a little bit like websites. So you have a couple of websites you go to on a regular basis, and that's it. Cool. I think cool. we're done. I think so. And totally, this is great. I always love chatting to you. Yeah, likewise. This was super fun. Yeah, likewise. Always good. All right. Take care.